This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. It's not always that the UFC takes place on a Friday, but at least they delivered with some solid action and excitement. UFC on ESPN 6, Reyes vs. Weidman, ended with the bang as Dominic Reyes knocked out Chris Weidman at 1 minute and 43 seconds of the first round. Here at Southpaw, we've discussed the slow decline of Chris Weidman, and it's no real surprise that his struggles at middleweight have followed him up a weight class. Even with that said, it's still a great win for Reyes and definitely puts him at a great spot to challenge Jones for a title, but we'll see if that's still too early. In other fights, Yair Rodriguez put on a great show against the always tough Jeremy Stevens by beating him in a unanimous decision. And despite all the action in this matchup, you couldn't help but be frustrated from a technical viewpoint. Finally, Macy Barber continued her ascent up the flyweight rankings by finishing Jillian Robertson in the first round. Is she really quote-unquote the future, or is she the product of good matchmaking? Let's delve further, starting with the main event. Before we get to the fight breakdown, let's give some historical context to Weidman and the problems of the middleweight division itself. It's no surprise to anyone that has been watching the UFC for quite some time that Weidman has been struggling. He is 1-5 in in his last 6 fights, an alarmingly bad record. If this was anyone else, other than maybe BJ Penn, he would have been told to retire or straight up cut from the promotion. It will be one thing if Weidman was at least going the distance and staying competitive throughout, but he's getting finished, and by strikes no less. In the preview leading up to this fight, as well as the past Southpaw episode in January, we covered the entirety of Weidman's UFC tenure and how it's not just a decline in ability and skill, it's the matchups that are damaging his career. Perhaps it's because he still has the name value from beating Anderson Silva twice that matchmakers and top brass officials have decided that Weidman is too much of a star to be given easier fights. He either has to win against top contenders or go out on shield. It's not out of the question that his contract might also play into this, since the higher someone gets paid, the more likely it is that they'll be given tough matchups, and no matter what happens, the UFC still comes out on top. Here's an example of this kind of marketing at play. Back in 2009, the UFC signed Yoshihiro Akiyama to bolster their then-flailing middleweight division. Akiyama was 12-1 and had wins over the likes of Melvin Manhoff, Dennis Kang, and beat Sakuraba before having the fight declared a no contest due to lathering up in lotion before the fight. What the UFC was really trying to do was break into the Asian market. Akiyama was a huge star in Korea, as well as being a notorious villain in Japan. Why those things happened are best left for another episode in the future, 
But it goes without saying that Dana White and company was banking on Akiyama delivering exciting fights and winning to ensure that the UFC can expand into Korea and Japan with the ready-made star in tow. Well, only half that hope came true. Akiyama delivered exciting fights, but struggled to win inside the octagon. It didn't help that in order to build him up as a credible threat, the matchmakers had to give him tough fighters that will win the respect of the hardcore fans. What happened was a 1-in-4 record for Akiyama, and having his star greatly diminished back home. The UFC overpaid for a star that wasn't the world beater they thought he could be, and giving him fringe contenders wouldn't do. This kind of scenario is playing out again with Chris Weidman. Back in 2016, before his fight with Yoel Romero, Weidman signed a contract extension that he said he was very happy with, so the UFC might be stuck having to pay Weidman a significant sum and forced to either give him the main or co-main headlining fights. There might also be a sense of loyalty, since Weidman spent countless hours lobbying on behalf of the UFC to get MMA sanctioned in New York. However, the pessimistic side of me thinks that the promotion is just banking on his name and using it to lure the hometown crowd. I mean, the last four of five fights that Weidman has been in have taken place in the state of New York. Coincidence? Probably not. Since they can't give Weidman any more contenders at middleweight, and with the possibility of having a fresh start at 205, the journey up in weight made a lot of sense. The narrative leading up to this fight is that Weidman just doesn't have to drain himself down to 185 anymore, and he can shock the world again and beat John Jones, just as he did against Anderson Silva. There was a lot of doubt, but we wouldn't know until Weidman stepped in against a legit 205-pounder, and he got that with this matchup. Anyways, on to his fight with Reyes. Weidman was making his debut as a light heavyweight, and it was clear from the beginning that he would not enjoy the size advantage he usually does at 185. From the get-go, Reyes was calm and confident heading into this fight, and it showed in his striking. Despite Weidman having the slight reach advantage, Reyes made sure to keep the fight on the outside by peppering Weidman with low kicks and kicks to the body. Reyes is a well-known softball with the speed to really trouble his opponents, and that's what makes the difference between him and others who emulate the style. Anyone can do the left high kick, left straight combo. It's not a magic weapon. What's going to make it really effective is the quickness and the lack of tell you give before throwing the strike. Outside of Krokop, very few fighters have been able to do this with the same level of success. In the preview, I talk specifically about how opponents are constantly playing a game of roulette by trying to decide if they have to defend against a high kick or a straight punch. The defenses to either are completely different, and if a wrong choice is made, they end up eating the strike entirely. Luckily for Weidman, he has a lot of experience fighting against Southpaws, but this was by far his biggest, outside of maybe Luke Rockhold. Weidman timed his takedowns to when Reyes would move forward with strikes, and he was successful in getting the fight down to the mats, albeit briefly. Unlike his fights with Rockhold and Romero, Reyes got up fairly quickly using a combination of wall walks, scooting his hips away from Weidman, framing his forearms against Weidman's face with an overhook, and constantly digging for underhooks and circling out. A crafty veteran move that Dominic Cruz called out 
was Reyes utilizing the cage to scrape off Weidman's grips when he was pressed along the fence. This was a favorite of Tito Ortiz back in the day, but it's still effective. Fighters have to choose between getting their hands and forearms grated like cheese or let go of their grips and save their limbs. As soon as they separate and have some space, Weidman goes on the attack and gets too eager in his strikes. After feinting with the jab and throwing a right straight, he is slow to move his hands back towards his chin and Reyes catches him with a clean left straight. This drops Weidman and after some follow-up hammer strikes, he gets knocked out cold. This is a cause for concern when it comes to Weidman. Yes, he has experience fighting southpaws, but he did so using patient jabbing and very good footwork. None of that was visible in this fight, and it cost him his light heavyweight debut. The future looks very bleak for Weidman. His body has been through the middleweight meat grinder, and it shows a little bit more with every matchup. He can't hang with the upper echelon of any division, and for the sake of his brain health and family, he should consider hanging it up for good. I can't even say he should go over to Beltor to try to be champion, since Gegard Musasi is there, and there's a very real chance that Rafael Lovato Jr. would also wreck Weidman. Even if he goes to Bellator's light heavyweight division, he's going to have to deal with Ryan Bader, and Bader has looked like a killer over there, albeit not facing the same level of competition. Maybe a move to one championship might do him some good. Even then, one's current light heavyweight and middleweight champion, Ong La En Sang, recently finished Brandon Vera and looked good doing it, so even that might not be the best option. I honestly don't think Weidman should be fighting again, or at least anytime soon. He should take over a year to think things through and at least give his body and mind a chance to recover. For Reyes, what a way to end the night. Not only did he beat a former world champion, but he got to do so with a knockout, while moving back no less. Even though Weidman was a career middleweight, it was still a big win in terms of name value and he's put himself in a great spot to challenge Jones next. Looking at the rankings, Cormier is still the number one contender, but he's facing Stipe Miocic in his final fight at heavyweight. Numbers 2 and 3 in the rankings are Thiago Santos and Anthony Smith, respectively. Both guys who recently fought and lost to Jones. Santos is going to be out for a bit due to the rehab required after his leg surgeries, and Smith will probably be asking for a title shot himself since he recently choked out Alexander Gustafson. A matchup between Smith and Reyes might be a good consolation prize, and it'll give Reyes another high-level matchup to build up his in-cage experience. Reyes should be working out the kinks in his game anyways, and Smith might need at least two wins before asking for a rematch with Jones since he lost that fight in a pretty lopsided fashion. One area of concern for Reyes is that he had his back way too close to the fence at times against Weidman, an absolute cardinal sin when facing against strong wrestlers or power strikers. John Jones isn't a knockout artist, but he's very adept at using the fence as a weapon and can grind on you using it, just like how he did against Cormier, Anthony Smith, and Glover Chexera. Like I said, hopefully he can work out those flaws with another matchup in the meantime. Beating Smith will let Reyes really clear out the division and make sure there is no one else left for John Jones to fight. Next up, we have Yair Rodriguez versus Jeremy Stevens. 
This is actually a rematch of their first fight, and between that time, there's been a ton of bad blood brewing. The first fight was ended early when Steven suffered an eye poke in the early goings of their match. The fans in Mexico City were not happy, and Rodriguez insinuated that Stevens was looking for a way out. Not only is this dumb, but it makes no sense. Stevens has no say in calling off a fight, that's the doctor. This is a guy who's faced off against the best at lightweight and featherweight. All of a sudden, he's going to look for a way out seconds into the fight? As fans, we need to be more understanding when it comes to doctor stoppages, especially when it comes to eye pokes. Unlike a broken finger or even a wrist, if you can't see your opponent, you're putting yourself in massive danger and can't readily adjust or change your striking and grappling strategy. Here's a quick exercise to demonstrate this. Go ahead and close one eye, it doesn't matter which one, and then quickly reach for an object near you. Try again with something else. And another one. Chances are you cheated and slowed down to calculate the distance and where your hands are in relation to the object. That's okay, you're human and you don't want to lose a challenge to some guy on a podcast. However, this serves to illustrate the point that with one eye compromise, your vision is so off that it causes a delayed reaction and changes your depth perception completely. Now imagine having to fight someone who has no qualms while taking advantage of your temporary Nick Fury-like situation, and will go out of your way to hurt you with strikes. This is the reality fighters have to deal with when their eyes get poked. They can go out there in a compromised state and hope to recover enough along the way to find a path to victory, or get the fight called off and be labeled a pussy by the fans. These things have real consequences. Look at Michael Bisping and his fake eye. Whether he fought the later stages of his career with a fake eye, or if he only got the removal after his retirement is a topic worth debating later, but the fact that he fought for so long with compromised vision might be why he suffered knockdowns and knockouts from punches that caught him on the right side. Fighters put their health on the line to entertain us, the least we can do is give them some leeway when they say they can't continue. Enough of that for now, let's get back to Stevens versus Rodriguez. There's a lot to unpack in this fight, so I'll try to break it down in linear fashion. Rodriguez channeled his inner Fabricio for doom and started with a flying kick to Stevens' head, and this fight went his way for the most part. Surprisingly, Rodriguez tried for takedowns against Stevens early on, possibly to throw him off his striking game. An intercepting knee was thrown at times when Stevens would rush in, and to mix things up, he also threw low-line kicks in the midsection and legs to slow him down. Rodriguez's southpaw stance also seemed to give Stevens problems, since he didn't seem accustomed to defending the kicks coming at him so quickly from both sides. Stevens' best moments came when he would throw low kicks to keep Rodriguez in place, and even though he ended up winging most of his hooks in straights, when he led with his jabs first, he ended up connecting with the hooks. Rodriguez's boxing leaves a lot to be desired, and he throws with full force when it comes to his overhands and spinning strikes. Rodriguez doesn't fade with his shoulders or his hands, so when he throws, you know it's with bad intentions. His best punches came as he threw a jab at a forward-moving Stevens, and it dropped him in the first round. Sam and I talk frequently about how the best strikes aren't flashy, they're basic with tons of good setups and feints. Adesanya might look like he's throwing punches from the Matrix, but he's simply timing your rhythm and movements very well. 
It's especially frustrating watching Stevens, since he's a capable striker and works with Dominic Cruz on a regular basis. Cruz doesn't throw the kicks like Rodriguez, but in terms of being able to crowd and work on out-jabbing someone, he would be a great person to try it out on. Frankie Edgar executed a brilliant but simple game plan against Rodriguez and befuddled him with jabs and feints into takedowns. Even when Korean Zombie fought Rodriguez, his simple jabs into straights gave Rodriguez fits, and Zombie was on his way to winning a decision before literally running into an upward elbow at the buzzer. Despite these shortcomings, if you give Rodriguez space to operate, he is dangerous. A body kick landed clean on Stevens in round 2, and it drops him. Stevens has a hard chin, but his body is vulnerable. Aldo finished him in similar fashion when they faced each other. And going back to this fight, some vicious ground and pound from Rodriguez hurt Stevens. And if only he spent some time with Tony Ferguson, Rodriguez could have finished Stevens. The tables get turned when Stevens is able to take down Rodriguez and hurt him on the ground to end round two. In the final round, Stevens was able to eventually implement his own game plan, hurting Rodriguez with hooks and taking him down on a more consistent basis. This is something he should have been doing early, and being nearly two rounds down meant that he had to finish Rodriguez. Despite channeling his inner Habib Nurmagomedov, Rodriguez is tough enough and has enough defensive savvy to last until the final bell, and he wins a unanimous decision against Jeremy Stevens. Stevens has had a rough stretch as of late, and he's winless in his past four bouts. Granted that they're all against killers, but it doesn't help his case when it comes to building towards a title shot. He has more or less been delegated as a gatekeeper for the featherweight division, a tough fighter you have to beat in order to move up towards a title shot. To rebuild, perhaps giving him some fighters outside the top 10 can help him get back on track to doing what he does best, low-kicking fighters into standing still and then hurting them with hooks. A rematch with Cub Swanson could be fun, or even a matchup against Michael Johnson. For Rodriguez, he's moving up onto better things, but his wrestling remains a liability. It makes sense to give him a strong grappler to see if he's able to overcome those deficiencies. It's too bad Brian Ortega already has a dance partner in Korean Zombie. That could have been fun. Perhaps the fight against Zabit will finally materialize? One can hope. If not, a rematch with Edgar might give him the redemption he seeks, since Edgar is the only fighter to have beaten Rodriguez in the UFC. Finally, we have Macy Barber versus Jillian Robertson. Barber continued her winning ways, defeating Robertson by TKO at 3 minutes and 4 seconds of the first round. Much has been made about the potential of Barber, and as of this episode, she's the youngest fighter on the UFC roster. Calling herself the future, she believes that she's the next evolution in women's MMA. Despite what the UFC's marketing team tells you, Women's MMA existed long before they created their bantamweight division. Early promotions like Hook and Shoot and Smack Girl were around to pave the way, and even Elite XC got in on the action early by making Gina Carano one of their stars. Barbara doesn't lack any of the confidence in herself, and at 21 years old, she does have a lot of potential. The fight itself wasn't bad, but there were clearly moments that you could tell a more polished striker would have given Barber problems on the feet. Barber does a good job of using jabs and feints to set up her straights, but her defensive choice is to move her head offline. 
Robertson attempted takedowns off a half guard pull, but it wasn't successful and Barber was able to land hooks repeatedly to get a stoppage from the referee. The interesting part of Barber's career is the amount of wins she has by elbows. It's very reminiscent of a prime David Loazzo, a former middleweight contender whose specialty was to set you up with hooks to get you in close range for repeated elbow attacks. The speed and power of Barber's hooks were impressive, but they don't generate any knockout. It's too early to tell if she's going to be champion, and she will have to fix some of her defensive flaws. Robertson threw a punch and a kick, and Barber attempted to reach down and grab the leg. A savvy striker would make her pay for such a mistake, and given that Barber didn't throw a single kick, it might be worth seeing if you could win a prolonged kicking game with her. Next week, the UFC gives us a grappler's delight when Ben Askren attempts to get back in the win column against Damian Maya in what could be an exciting match on the ground or a complete dud on the feet. Now, that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever player you use so people can find us in their searches. A home has arrived for lefty nerds who like MMA, and we want to make sure everyone can hear our signal. With that said, so long and goodbye. Goodbye.